0: Have you ever been in a situation where you've known how you're meant to respond, but you've hesitated because you've been worried about what that will result in? Maybe it was a work situation, where being honest about something you'd done or a decision you made would make the boss unhappy or would make you unpopular with your colleagues. Maybe it was with a friend or a family member, where you're worried that if you point that certain thing out or if you respond honestly to that question, that it would have a negative effect on your relationship and maybe even damage the relationship in some way. Well, that happened to me several years ago now. This particular person who I was close to, his wife had been sick for quite a long time and they tried all sorts of things to help her out, all sorts of doctors and alternative medicines, nothing worked, it was a desperate situation. And then one day he rang me to tell me, in an attempt to help, that they'd started praying to the saints. They were nominally Catholic. And after doing this, she'd noticed a slight improvement in some of the symptoms. And then he asked me what I thought about it. What do you think about praying to the saints, Matt? And I told him that I didn't think it was the best thing to get involved in. In fact, There was nothing in the Bible that encourages or condones it. In fact, quite the opposite. He didn't like my response too much. There was silence on the end of the phone. The conversation wrapped up quite quickly. And over the next few weeks and months, he made it clear that he didn't appreciate my lack of support for them praying to the saints. And things went downhill quite quickly as the attacks intensified and I remember thinking as all this was unfolding as the relationship was effectively unraveling all I need to do to make this conflict go away is to say yeah it's okay to pray to the saints that one compromise would get rid of all the unpleasant things that I are experiencing and restore the relationship the temptation was real I don't like conflict I don't like being hurt and I'm sure none of us here do and all it would take to make it go away was one moment of compromise on my part. By God's grace that didn't end up happening but I was tempted to do it so many times. The people that Peter writes his first letter to were facing a similar sort of scenario. The specifics were very different to what I face, but the temptation to compromise their faith or even give in was very real, because the people that Peter wrote to were being slandered and insulted and ostracised for their faith and for living it out. Have a look for example at chapter 3 verse 16, there Peter refers to those who speak maliciously against you, that is, the Christian readers, against your good behaviour in Christ. A few verses earlier, 3 verse 9, he says, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. The implication being is that people were acting in an evil way towards them. People were insulting them. 4 verse 4, they, that is the non-Christians, are surprised that you don't join them in their reckless wild living and they heap abuse on you. 4 4, he says to them in a quote from Isaiah, do not fear their threats, do not be frightened. These people were being, in, being slandered, insulted, abused, threatened. There was conflict, hurtful, painful attacks because of the lives they lived following Jesus. And no doubt some some of them were thinking, I could put an end to this if all I did was compromise a bit. If I join them every now and then in what they do, I won't do it often. Or if I keep my mouth shut when certain conversations come up or or minimise my view when asked my opinion on something. And the fact that Peter encourages them at the end of this letter, in chapter 5, verse 12, to stand fast in what they know to be true, seems to imply that some were tempted to do these sort of things. Some were tempted to take the easier path, the path of least resistance, the path that did away with hurts and insults and ostracizations, like most of us, I'm sure, would. And as well as encouraging them not to do this, Peter also lets them know in that same verse, chapter 5, verse 12, his reasons for writing. So Peter knows they're going through a hard time. He knows they're being slandered and insulted and ostracized. So he writes to them, he says in 512, to encourage them and to testify that what he has written to them is the true grace of God. And he begins the testimony in the passage that we're looking at this morning, chapter 1 verses 3 to 9, and the testimony focuses on this situation faced by the readers, their reality. And in doing this, Peter knows that it is absolutely vital that those to whom he is writing see and understand what is happening from the right perspective. Because if they don't, they might mistake it for something else. If they don't, they might miss out on the grace of God in their lives. On the screen is a picture of 1,252 black balls suspended from a ceiling. And that's exactly what they look like in this picture, don't they? Rough geometrical shape, maybe, but black balls suspended from the ceiling. From this perspective, if you change your view, these balls look Quite different as this video shows. So, from one angle or perspective, the balls look like 1200 odd black balls suspended from a ceiling. Nothing much from side on. From front on, they look like a human eye. It's exactly the same thing. Looks completely different from different perspectives. The angle or perspective that we look at something from, that we see something from, whether physically or whether conceptually, can have a profound impact on what we see and perceive and how we respond. And Peter knows this. And what's more, he knows that the right perspective, the best perspective to look at things from, is God's perspective. Seeing and understanding God's agenda. That is, understanding who God is and what he has done for us in the past and what he is doing for us now in the present. And when we see things from God's perspective, we both understand properly what happens, and we can make sense of it. And we also have the opportunity to respond in the right way to what happens to us and to what happens around us. And this is exactly what Peter wants his readers to do. This is what God wants all of his children to do, to see things from the right perspective, to properly understand and make sense of what's happening in our lives and to respond in the right way. And this can only happen when we understand who God is, and what he has done, and what he is presently doing. And so that's the journey Peter takes them on in this passage. And he starts by talking about who God is, or he highlights one particular aspect of God's character. Do you notice that in verse 3? He highlights God's mercy, God's great mercy. Great mercy expressed in new birth, Peter says. Have a look at verse 3 with me. Peter says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And this concept of new birth that Peter talks about here, that he introduces here, is key to understanding things from the right perspective. When you and I were born... When anyone is born, we're born into a particular situation, aren't we? A situation that is determined by the family that we're born into. Some of us, we might have been born into wealth, others poverty, others somewhere in between. Some of us might have been born into a close-knit family, others into a not-so-close-knit family. And we're all born into families that have a predisposition to certain physical traits or mental traits, don't we? Some of them are strengths, they're characteristics that we want to develop. Others of them might hold us back, they might be ailments, but the family we're born into shapes so much about us. And it's with this reality in mind that Peter reminds the readers that God has given them new birth into a new family, a new family with a new reality. And Peter explains three aspects of that reality from the second half of verse 3. So I'll start from the beginning of verse 3 again. In God's great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last times. Peter reminds the readers here that God has given his children Three things, a living hope, an inheritance, and salvation. And not only are they three things that everyone would hope for, but in the case of those that Peter writes to, they are things that by all appearances, most of them wouldn't have had. So Peter describes the people he writes to in the very first verse as exiles, In 2 verse 11, he describes them as aliens and strangers in the world. They were outsiders, foreigners where they were living. They didn't belong. Certainly metaphorically, but maybe even literally for some of them as well. Some of them were likely strangers and foreigners in the land that they lived in Asia Minor. Without a family, without a place to call home. Others might have become like that, become social exiles because of their association with the Lord Jesus. Maybe lost jobs or status or homes. Many of them would have lived a a precarious existence. No financial security. No family to turn to to help or protect. No help from the government. It would have been in many ways an existence with a significant amount of uncertainty and not a lot of hope. Peter points out here, though, that this is only one perspective on their lives. They are vulnerable foreigners, aliens, without hope, from one perspective. From another perspective, though, from God's perspective, the perspective that ultimately matters, they are his children. And regardless of their current situation, they have hope, they have an inheritance, they have salvation. And the quality of these things far exceeds anything the world can offer. Did you notice how Peter describes these things in those verses? The hope we have as children of God, he says, is a living hope rather than a hope that is only temporary, at best, a hope that's going to let you down, which is the hope the world offers. And the reason our hope is a living hope is because it's based on the living one. Peter says it's a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Therefore, our hope, the hope that God gives is living because Jesus is living and it will continue to live because Jesus will continue to live. And as well as this, the inheritance that God has for us, Peter says in verse 4, can never perish, spoil, or fade. Earthly inheritances, no matter how good, no matter how big, no matter how robust, will always perish, spoil, and fade eventually. They're temporary inheritances. They have a limited shelf life. The inheritance God gives us, though, as Peter points out, is kept in heaven for us where nothing can get to it, where it's eternal. And thirdly, the salvation we have is guaranteed because as we read in verse 5, it's shielded by God's power. Nothing can take it away because God is guarding it for you and for me. This is how things really are for the children of God. We have a hope that is living, not dead. We have an inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade. We have salvation that is guaranteed. Three of our principal needs completely taken care of. 100% guaranteed. No wonder Peter starts this section by saying, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. No wonder he says in verse six that we should rejoice in these things. And it's natural to rejoice in things that give us joy, things that we value, isn't it? We rejoice when a new baby is born and rightly so. We rejoice when we get a gift that we enjoy and rightly so. We rejoice when our team wins. We rejoice when our super performs well. So it only makes sense to rejoice and rejoice often about things that are so much greater than that salvation, an inheritance, a hope. When I hear this encouragement by the Apostle Peter, though, I have to admit I feel a little bit sheepish because I don't find myself often rejoicing about these things. I don't find myself often rejoicing about the hope that I have in him, the inheritance that Jesus has won for me, the salvation that God has given in Christ. And how about you? Do you rejoice about these things? sure some of you here do, perhaps many of you. And if so, that is great. That is what we're meant to do. Let me encourage you to keep it up. Keep rejoicing about these wonderful things. If you're a little bit more like me, though, and you don't spend that much time rejoicing about them, have you reflected on why this might be the case? Maybe you're reflecting now, as we're talking about it. And as I reflected, it on this, reflected on it this week as I was preparing the sermon, I realised that the main reason that I don't rejoice as much as I should and about the things that I should is that I'm focusing on the wrong things often. Or if it's not the wrong things, I'm looking at it from the wrong perspective. My perspective's often wrong. And as a result, I don't see things as they really are. To turn back to that illustration I use with the balls hanging from the ceiling, suspended from the ceiling, I'm often looking from the side on perspective. I don't really see what it is. I need to change the perspective. And I do this with both the things of God as well as the things of the world. When it comes to the things of the world, I find myself believing what the world sells often. The security and hope is found in the things. Here that we need to invest in those things, financial stability, a trouble-free life, approval by others. And coupled with this, I don't often reflect on the wonderful gifts that God has given me. A real inheritance, a sure salvation, an eternal and unshakable future. I need reorienting. I need to ask God to reorient my perspective, to help me see and understand things and value the things that he does, to value the things that he gives to his children, as well as also seeing the things of the world in the right light and to not value them in the way that I do so often. And I need to be doing this for two reasons, I think. Firstly, because it will keep the truth before me, in sight, in my mind. Because if it's not there, it's easy to forget and ignore, isn't it? It's easy to lose perspective, especially as we're bombarded day in, day out, hour upon hour, minute by minute upon minute by what the world has to offer. It seeps in. So secondly, the more regularly that I do this, the more that I focus on what truly matters, on the truth about who I am as God's child, the less time I will have to focus on things of this world. The less I will value them, the less they will distract me. And what's more, the more I do it, the more of a habit it becomes, which can only be a good thing. So this week I made a commitment to do this regularly to reflect on the new birth that God has given me in the Lord Jesus to ask God to show me how wonderful his gifts truly are how wonderful he is and to ask God to keep that to allow me to keep that perspective to value what he values to to love what he loves And maybe you might want to commit to doing the same thing if you're not doing it already. Remind yourself regularly of these truths. Ask God to continue to prompt you as you go throughout your day about what really matters, who you are as his child. So let me encourage you to pray for these things regularly carve out a time each day. It only has to be a couple of minutes. And ask God to help you see things the way He sees them from His perspective. And to keep doing that throughout the day. Because it is important for us to see things from God's perspective. Not only is it important because it's true, but it's actually what's best for us as well. It's what's ultimately fulfilling. There's one more truth that Peter highlights in this passage that I want to finish on today. And that's the truth about the purpose of trials and suffering. Now, suffering and trials is a massive subject, and I'm not going to delve into it all today, not even close. We're going to look at that in more detail in a couple of weeks. What I want to do today is just focus on what Peter says in this passage about trials and suffering. And he says it in verse 6 and 7, so have a look with me. He says, in all of this, you greatly rejoice. That is what he's just explained about being a child of God, about new birth. Though now for a little while, you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Peter recognises that those he writes to are suffering trials of all kinds, he says. He doesn't go into details about the trials. He doesn't advise them about how to handle them. He does a little bit of that later on in the letter. Rather, his focus here is to give his readers the right perspective on them, just as he's done with the new birth that we have in God, in Christ. Peter wants his readers to be able to make sense of the trials they're going through to understand them according to God's agenda and what God is doing. And Peter tells the reader that God allows his people to go through trials to prove the genuineness of their faith, he says. Now, let me tell you, that's not for God's sake, that's for our sake. Now, while Peter doesn't elaborate what this means. I think the Bible seems indicates two ways in which trials do this. Trials prove the genuineness of our faith. Firstly, those who have true faith, those that are followers of the Lord Jesus, will face trials and suffer because of him. Jesus himself says that several times to his disciples, doesn't he? For example, John 15 verse 20, Jesus says to them, Remember what I told you, a servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. The servants are persecuted because of the master. The second way in which suffering and trials prove the genuineness of our faith is that in them, in our trials, those with faith turn to God. We look to him and depend on him. And in this process, our faith becomes refined. Like fire refines gold, Peter says. And so in the end, while suffering and trials are not enjoyable, far from it. They are part of God's mercy to us. His mercy in showing us that our faith is genuine. His mercy in giving us opportunities to rely more deeply on him. And so as with new birth, the trials and sufferings that we go through are part of God's mercy to us as his children. They show our faith, which is integral to our salvation, to be genuine. Just as fire shows gold to be genuine. The part that survives the fire is the genuine gold. And so all of these things, the new birth that we have along with the Hope that it brings and the inheritance and the salvation, as well as the trials and sufferings that we face, are all a source of joy. They're all reasons to praise God because they're all part of His mercy to us. Now, that might sound a bit counterintuitive, especially the part about trials and suffering being a reason to praise God. But I think they're only counterintuitive, and this is what Peter wants his readers to understand. They're only counterintuitive if we're looking at them from the wrong perspective. And many of us, including me, do that. I have a tendency to treat suffering and trials the way the world does, to treat them with despair and distress. And while trials and suffering are not fun, not enjoyable experiences, they are difficult, they are hard, we shouldn't view them with despair and distress, Peter says. Rather, because of our new situation, because of the new birth that we have in the Lord Jesus, we can now see trials the way God sees them, from his perspective, the right perspective. And this perspective is that God uses trials and suffering to prove the genuineness of our faith, to allow us to go deeper with him, to trust in him more, to experience in him in ways that we wouldn't have experienced him otherwise. And again, this is not something that comes naturally, at least not to me. So it's another area which I need my perspective reoriented. It's another one of those things that I need to ask God to help me see the truth. And maybe you do as well. So why don't we, with God's help, seek to do exactly that. Because I suspect that God's church in general, I'm not talking about Ramon here specifically, God's church in general is in great need of doing this. To ask God to help us see trials and suffering from his perspective and to let him use them in our lives and the lives of his people and his church. And again, it's something that we need to be doing regularly, isn't it? Because it would be so easy to forget God's perspective, especially on something as challenging as trials and suffering. So let's commit to doing that as God's people. Coming to him regularly, asking him to help us see things from his perspective, especially the difficulties and trials we go through. Again, let me encourage you to take a particular part of the day to do that. For me, I find the morning most helpful. There's less in my mind. I'm fresher. I come to God then. But for you, the morning might not help. You might have little kids running around being really loud. You might find it hard to wake up in the morning. Whatever it might be, morning's not good for you. Choose another time of day. Whenever's good for you, set it aside. Come to God. Ask him to help you see things from his perspective and keep doing that. And this morning we're going to finish with a minute or two just doing that now by ourselves. So where you're sitting, just silently bow your head, come to God. Thank him for the wonderful, for the new birth he's given us, for the inheritance, for salvation, for hope, ask him to help us see things from his perspective especially the tough things of life so let's just spend a minute or two doing that and then I'll close with prayer our Father in heaven you are a great wonderful and merciful God we praise you that you have given us new birth into a living hope, that you've given us an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, that you have given us salvation that is shielded by you. We thank you for those wonderful gifts. We thank you, Father, also for the trials and the difficulties that you allow us to do so that we can see you more clearly, so that our faith can be deepened Our love for you can be deepened, our dependence on you can be deepened. Forgive us, Father, for the many times when we don't look at things from your perspective, where we choose to see things from the world's perspective, whether that be what we value, whether that be how we see our trials and our difficulties. Father, have mercy on us. We pray that you would be prompting us by your Spirit to be coming to you regularly. To ask to, and ask you to alter our perspective where it needs altering. Not just so that we can individually have a deeper relationship with you, but that as a church, we can encourage one another, love one another, grow together, and be a light to the communities that you have around us.